Welcome, everyone, to the first episode of Presenting the Past, a podcast series exploring the digitized collections of public radio and television in the American Archive of Public Broadcasting, otherwise known as the AAPB. I'm Christine Becker, Associate Professor in the Department of Film, Television, and Theater at the University of Notre Dame. And normally you'd hear me as co-host of the Acamedia podcast from the Society for Cinema and Media Studies, but we've launched this new partnership with the AAPB and are thrilled to be able to bring the archive to your ears. About that, the American Archive of Public Broadcasting is a massive resource. There are nearly 60,000 public radio and television items streaming online. I'm talking local and national programming, news series, public affairs shows, documentaries, and raw interviews created over the past seven decades. So where do you begin with a collection like that? Well, how about with the people who use it? Accordingly, this series features conversations with guests from AAPB's community of researchers, scholars, and educators who share what they have found in the archive. And we're kicking things off in this first episode with Michelle Kelly, a writer and editor who got her PhD from NYU and was a postdoctoral teaching fellow at Washington University in St. Louis, a.k.a. Wash U. Michelle has created an online exhibit in partnership with the AAPB about the PBS documentary series Eyes on the Prize. So we're going to learn more about that in this episode. So thanks for being our first guest, Michelle. Thank you. It's great to be here. The focus of your work is Eyes on the Prize, a 14-part documentary series focusing on the civil rights movement in the United States. It was created and executive produced by Henry Hampton, and the first six hours aired on PBS in January 1987, covering the years 1954 to 1965, and then another eight hours aired in 1990, spanning 1965 to 1985. So what drew you to Eyes on the Prize and made you want to look at more than just what aired on television? I first became interested in Eyes on the Prize while I was a postdoc at, I was a postdoc in the Film and Media Studies program at uh, Washington University in St. Louis, and Henry Hampton was an alumni of WashU. So Henry Hampton was a filmmaker. He had uh, marched in Selma and had long wanted to make a film on the civil rights movement, and so In the late 1970s, this is when he begins to lay the groundwork for what became Eyes on the Prize. And so WashU has uh, his papers, and they have a lot of material related to the production of Eyes on the Prize. So on a a very basic level, just the very fact that this material was at WashU drew me to it. And how did you get connected then to the AAPB and the Eyes on the Prize exhibit? I presented on Eyes on the Prize at the Society for Cinema and Media Studies conference, and I was approached by Alan Gevinson, who is one of the directors at the American Archive of Public Broadcasting. So he attended my talk, and uh, he asked me if I would like to write the content for the exhibit, Freedom Song, the interviews from Eyes on the Prize, America's Civil Rights Years. So what you worked with in the archive was a whole lot more material than actually made it to air in the documentary series. So what can you tell us about that unseen material? There are 127 interviews, um, and they range in length from, I think the shortest might be five minutes, um, and then the longest is about two hours. I think the Coretta Scott King interview is, is two hours long. So obviously there's a lot of content there that wasn't used, and uh I should say that that some of these interviews were filmed prior to uh, the making of Eyes One. Um, They were filmed during the production of the predecessor to Eyes on the Prize, which was called America, They Loved You Madly. Hmm. Um, And this was Henry Hampton's first attempt to tell the civil rights story for television. 
and it would have aired on ABC, but the media company he was working with cut ties with him after they saw the rushes. So they filmed a lot of interviews early on, and thankfully they were able to, to use that content later for Eyes One. So the interviews for this exhibit, some of them were filmed in the late 70s, and some of them were filmed later for Eyes on the Prize. And there's just a lot of material there. John Else uh, has a book called True South. He was a uh, producer on the series, and he talks about just how much material they had to leave out to tell a sort of coherent story about the civil rights movement, right? And so to me, the, the value of the exhibit is really that the interviews give users insight into this period that they wouldn't get from Eyes on the Prize. So the interviews sort of serve as a kind of counterpoint to the documentary, right? That they just give a different perspective. They tell different stories. And so some of the interviews were uh, not used at all. Most of them, the filmmakers use clips. An example of an interview that wasn't used at all is um, the interview with Robert Williams. Robert Williams is an interesting figure. He was the head of the Monroe, North Carolina chapter of the NAACP. He filed for a charter with the National Rifle Association and actually armed members of the black community in Monroe to defend themselves against the Klan. Wow. Yeah, and so he sort of talks about this and how he ran afoul of the higher-ups in the NAACP. He was later framed for abducting um, a white couple uh, during the Freedom Rides and fled to Cuba. So his story does not make it into Eyes One, but it's a really interesting uh, story, and it just gives a different perspective on the same historical period. And just one follow-up question. Uh, you said the media company Henry Hampton was working with to prepare the ABC airing of uh, America, They Loved You Madly, uh, backed out when they saw the rushes. So was it too controversial or something like that? It was actually just considered sort of dry. Oh, okay. Uh, <laughs> sort of dry and it didn't gel. Mm. Um, yeah, so John Else in True South talks about how this was actually a good thing. It was a failure that was gutting for Henry Hampton, but he says that Eyes on the Prizes became a much better documentary than America, They Loved You Madly ever could have been. Mm. So he sort of learned from that and was able to make uh, Eyes on the Prize and use a lot of the same interview material and some, you know, some of the same imagery shows up in some of the promotional materials, right? And so, yeah, America They Loved You Madly just served as a kind of, yeah, a forerunner to Eyes on the Prize and helped him to, I think, clarify his vision for the, for the series. Our listeners are likely familiar with some of the more famous leading figures who are featured in Eyes on the Prize, and you mentioned someone like Coretta Scott King. Um, but what are some of the contributions by lesser-known figures uh, and, and that you think are worth highlighting? So this was actually an objective for the filmmakers on Eyes on the Prize as well. They wanted to feature interviews with movement leaders, but also uh, sort of everyday people, um, the people who made the movement a mass movement, foot soldiers. And so there are a lot of interviews in the collection with people who were not very well known. For example, um, there are two interviews with women who were little girls during the uh, Selma campaign, uh, Cheyenne Webb and Rachel West Nelson. And their story was subsequently adapted into a book and then a, a film. There's also an interview with Frederick Leonard. Frederick Leonard participated in the Freedom Rides 
And he was there when freedom riders were attacked in Montgomery by a white mob. And his account is really stirring. Um, John Else talks about how this was definitely one of the most compelling interviews that, that the filmmakers conducted. And he's not someone who had talked publicly about his role in the Freedom Rides very much before this. Um, he certainly wasn't, you know, isn't well known for his role in the movement, but his interview just added a lot to Eyes on the Prize. And, and it's a really compelling story that he that he tells. Let's give our listeners a sense of how compelling that interview was. So here's Frederick Leonard describing one of his harrowing Freedom Rides experiences. Well, we were in the terminal in Birmingham, and what happened here was, I think all of us were under the belief that we would be taken back to Tennessee like the first group was. But uh, that didn't happen. Um, the sheriff was there. We had plenty of protection. Police everywhere. The Klan comes through with their guns and their robes and everything, but we felt safe because they just walked past us. They didn't hassle us at all. And so we were there about maybe a couple of hours before the bus left for Montgomery. And when we left going to Montgomery, everybody was relaxed, no problem. We had police escort. They followed us down the highway, felt comfortable. Going into the terminal in Montgomery, everybody was feeling comfortable. We didn't see anybody. And we didn't see any police either. And then all of a sudden, just like, whoosh, magic. White people, sticks and bricks. Nigger, kill the niggers. We were still on the bus, you know? But I think we all kind of decided, well, maybe we should go off the back of this bus because we kind of knew that if we had gone off the back of the bus that maybe they wouldn't be so bad on us. They wanted us to go off the back of the bus. And we decided, no, no, we'll go off the front and take what's coming to us. We went off the front of the bus. Jim Swery was a white fellow from uh, Madison, Wisconsin. He had a lot of nerve. And I think that's what saved me, Bernard Lafayette, Alan Kaysen, because Jim Swery walked off the bus in front of us. Now, another part of uh, sort of lesser known uh, pieces in the story, and in fact, into the entire civil rights movement, um, is the role of women. And so they've historically gone underexplored or marginalized in the history of the civil rights movement. So what did your research uncover about the role of women in this period? Uh, this was something that I wanted to feature in the exhibit, and there are sort of two parts to this. So one thing I wanted to address that isn't addressed in Eyes on the Prize is the role of violence against Black women in the Jim Crow South. And there's been more recent historical work on this, and it's part of this history that hasn't received a lot of attention. But it's defi it definitely comes out in the interviews, right? It's not something that is addressed very much in Eyes One, but um, Robert Williams, for example, talks about the violence against Black women by white men and how this was sort of an integral part of uh, Jim Crow. And so I wanted to address that and talk a little bit about how the interviews uh, touch on that. Um, and then I also wanted to talk about the activism of Black women that has been overshadowed by that of men. 
Um, and this is something that Eyes on the Prize does a good job at, actually. Um, so, for example, uh, the story of the Montgomery bus boycott. Very often people know about Rosa Parks' role, but then the story focuses on Martin Luther King Jr. and the Montgomery Improvement Association and their role in coordinating the boycott. However, the boycott was actually initiated by the Women's Political Council. Um, and this was led by a woman named Joanne Robinson. And the Eyes crew interviewed Joanne Robinson, and she talks about how there's a kind of misconception that the Montgomery bus boycott sort of came out of nowhere. And she talks about how there was actually like, they had been working for years to coordinate something where they could mount a direct attack on segregation in, on, in busing in Montgomery. And so when Rosa Parks was arrested, this was uh, an opportunity that they seized, right? But they had been working to lay the groundwork for the boycott for years before. Yeah, let's listen to a piece of that interview. Here's uh, Joanne Robinson answering a question about events organizing for the Montgomery bus boycott before Rosa Parks' arrest and the implications of that immediately afterward. When you look back in history, it looks like the boycott was a spontaneous act provoked by the arrest of Rosa Parks, was it? It was a spontaneous act from those persons who were not members of the Women's Political Council. But we had worked for at least three years getting that thing organized. The night that the, the night of the evening that Rosa Parks was arrested, Fred Gray called me and told me she was arrested. She had, uh, somebody had gone on her bail, but her case would be on Monday. And I, as president of the main body of the Women's Political Council, got on the phone and I called all the officers of the three chapters. I called as many of the men who had supported us as possible. And I told them that Rosa Parks had been arrested and she would be tried. They said, you have the plans, put them into operation. I called every person who was in every school and every place where we had planned to be at that, have somebody at that school or wherever it was at a certain time, that I would be there with materials for them to disseminate. I didn't go to bed that night. I cut those stencils. I ran off 35,000 copies of the little foyer that you uh, have. And uh, I, I distributed them. I had uh, classes from 8 to 10 at the college. And at 10 o'clock, I had two senior students who had agreed to go with me. I took them in my car. The packages were already there. It would take about a half a minute to drive on a school campus. The kid would be there. In just a minute, they would disappear. It's really amazing to hear those details, especially realizing how little many of us have been taught about the true history here. And that plus what you previously discussed, Michelle, actually makes me think of our present moment and things like the movement for black lives and attempts to ensure uh, black women are recognized for their efforts in that. And it's also striking how many recent feature films are reflecting on this period in American history, like Judas and the Black Messiah, One Night in Miami, and Trial of the Chicago 7. Those films are set in the past, of course, but their themes resonate with the present, things that are happening right now. So do you have any thoughts about that, you know, working with this historical material, but living in the present and, and feeling the past reverberating on the present? Yeah. So when Blackside, which is Henry Hampton's production company, made Eyes on the Prize, um, they had a very strict rule that they would not reference the present moment, which was the mid-1980s, right, when they were filming. So they stayed very much within their historical, within the historical moment of the 1950s and 60s. But there was always the idea that these stories would resonate 
for a contemporary audience and would um, would resonate for that moment in terms of in the mid 1980s, there was a lot of revisionist history about the civil rights movement and a kind of co-optation of the civil rights movement and that history by people whose um, politics were in, in many ways antithetical to those of civil rights activists, right? So when Eyes on the Prize came out, there was the idea that we weren't going to address the present moment, but it should have resonance for the present. Um, I think with the interviews in this exhibit, they offer a lot of ideas and insight into how to organize and how to address racial injustice that I think contemporary activists could draw upon. I actually, when I was at WashU, I worked with two students, and I'm based in St. Louis, right? And so one of them had been active in Ferguson and um, was very active in the Black Lives Matter movement. She talked about how, like, for her, the interviews were really interesting because they gave her insight into how people dealt with the same problems in terms of, like, organizing back then. Um, And it gave her sort of ideas and strategies for approaching these things in the present. Yeah, I had another student who talked about how she found the interviews inspiring because these people were so young. Many of them were so young when they were active, they were in college, and it made her realize that she had more agency perhaps than she realized, right? That there was a lot that she could do in sort of fighting injustice today. Uh, so she, yeah, she just found the, those those interviews really inspiring. So I hope that the interviews, you know, I don't think that they offer a blueprint um, for the present moment because things are in many ways different than they were in the 50s and 60s, but I, I think they do offer inspiration and some ideas, some, some ideas that are sort of nuts and bolts about like organizing and strategy. Yeah, and that's, you know, especially inspiring as far as then the value of going into an archive and finding interviews like this. I mean, it's really important mm-hmm. to essentially resurrect this this kind of material. So what can our listeners expect to find in the exhibit you put together for the AAPB? It's the, uh, the full-length interviews that the filmmakers conducted for Eyes on the Prize, Part 1. So that covers uh, 1954 to 1965. So these interviews were digitized and then... Uh, made available to the AAPB to um, be part of this exhibit. And I believe WashU is in the process of digitizing the interviews for part two, which covers uh, 65 to 85. Um, So any final thoughts about larger takeaways from your work on Eyes in the Prize and, and the archival materials tied to it? Yeah, I think the only thing I would add is that what I think is really great about WashU's digitization project and what the AAPB is doing in making these interviews accessible is it's making archival material um, available to people outside of academia. And so that's just something that I think is really important. And so I hope people use the exhibit in that way as a kind of a a source. Um, And I'm really looking forward to the completion of the digitization project for the interviews for Eyes 2. So I think that that'll be, uh, yeah, just offer a lot more information and insight into this, um, the history of the Black freedom struggle. And where can uh, people access the exhibit? The exhibit, it's called Freedom Song, Interviews from Eyes on the Prize, America's Civil Rights Years, 1954 to 1965. And that is available on AmericanArchive.org. And final fun fact for those of you who have seen Judas and the Black Messiah, and you see at the very end the clip from William O'Neill from Eyes on the Prize, you can see that full interview at AmericanArchive.org. So follow up from the fictionalized version of it to see the real thing online. And finally, where can our listeners learn more about you and, and your other work? 
Probably the best place would be my website, which is uh, michellerkelly.com. Okay, great. And we will put links to that and everything else on our website. We've got two for this uh, project, the AmericanArchive.org from the AAPB, and then ACA Media's own website, ACA-Media.org. So thanks so much to Michelle Kelly for talking with us about your fascinating research and the AAPB exhibit. Yeah, thank you. And thank you to the listeners out there. You are uh, yourselves now part of history as we close the book on the first episode of Presenting the Past. Finally, I'd like to uh, also thank sound engineer Todd Thompson at the University of Texas at Austin for his post-production work on this podcast and for composing our theme music. Please join us next month for another deep dive into the American Archive of Public Broadcasting. 